It's continuous work. There's times where like, you're like, oh, I did it. Nah, I know you did it. You know what I mean? Like you may, may have unlocked another level, but there's another level. There's more and more and more. It's perpetual work of trying to figure out how am I going to be a good person in the world and a good person that can love myself authentically all the way. And not with shame either, but actual self-introspection and self-reflection and shifting behaviors. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and this week we are talking about patriarchy, accountability, transformation, queerness, and tender masculinity with Iraq Arroyo Montano. Iraq says that he's a proud father of three wonderful children, an MC, a circle keeper, artist, cultural organizer, educator, curandero in training, and an aspiring elder. He's a queer Boricua raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and a founding member of the radical award-winning hip-hop group, Foundation Movement, with whom he has been blessed to facilitate workshops and perform all over the world. Healing justice, arts and activism, and popular education are his passions, his purpose, his priority in his community liberation movement work. And currently, he's practicing some of that work as a facilitator in his current role as the director of cultural organizing at the grassroots economic justice organization United for a Fair Economy. You can find Iraq's writing and contact information at the link in the show notes to this episode. This conversation has been really blooming since I connected with Iraq and we recorded this actually a couple months ago. The conversation about masculinity and men taking responsibility for undoing patriarchy has been happening at scale in our movements, um, as it has in waves throughout history, right, and hopefully is happening at all times. But in particular, we reference an essay that when we spoke, Adrienne Marie Brown had just put out, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Since then, Adrienne facilitated, and via a question from Leah Penniman, a list of uh, resources and local groups for men who are committed to the work of undoing patriarchy. And so you're going to see on our social media all these two weeks while this episode in practice airs, a lot of conversation and resource sharing about this. So if you know folks locally who are convening um, men and uh, men in the most expansive definition of whoever identifies with that term, to work on patriarchy and uh, misogyny, we welcome you over to our social media to share what you know so that we can be cross-sharing resources all along these two weeks. Another quick note about what's happening here at the podcast, there's always so many things moving beneath the surface here. I think about like y'all listening as when you see like a duck on the water and it seems so calm and like it's just moving forward and then underneath the water the the legs are like moving furiously to paddle right so some of the things that we're paddling through that you may not hear obviously when you listen but are happening beneath the surface one is our renaming work that continues in accountability conversations, in visioning. We thank everybody who has participated in our survey to help us 
think about a new good name for this project and also a, an accountable and generative process as we transition off of the name of Healing Justice by later this year. So you'll be hearing more from us about that soon. And also a big, big joy about the new folks who are starting with us on the podcast team this very week. If you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, we are about to head up to upstate New York for a three-day onboarding retreat with our new digital organizer and our new podcast producer here on the team. Uh, we'll be recording something while we're up there for you all so that they can introduce themselves. So I'm not going to steal their thunder by sharing their names now. But uh, we've found some incredible people and just want to convey such deep thanks to our community for joining in this hiring process with us, which took the past couple months. Thank you to everyone who applied. Over 90 people submitted applications for these two positions, and so many of you were uniquely qualified and incredible, and I feel uh, a great blessing that we came into some relationship with you through that uh job-seeking interviewing process. Um, we have big thanks to share with all of the former guests and friends and advisors of the podcast who spread the word about the application and also referred gorgeous candidates to us. Um, and an, a specific thank you to Maura Bailey, who is the person on our advisory circle who is in charge of supporting our team and our team dynamics. And for Mora's time and intentionality in having final conversations with the folks in the final rounds of interview um, and offering herself as an ongoing support to our team so that as we grow, we grow in a good way. And so, so excited for y'all to meet those new folks, to hear about the new name. Uh, the work continues and let's dive into conversation with Iraq. Hey, Iraq, how you doing? Peace, Kate. I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm uh, honored to be to be here having this conversation with you. I'm so glad that you're here. It was so hilarious when I I Instagram messaged you. I've been I've been watching you for almost the whole time this podcast has been out because Francisca <laughs> Porchas put me on to you. Shout out Francisca. I messaged you on Instagram and you wrote back and you're like, I've been waiting for this invitation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was wanting to be in conversation with you on this, and I'm grateful for the platform that you've created with folks and that you're sharing with people. Well, I'm really excited for me and the folks listening to get the opportunity to just hear a little bit about who you are. Word. <laughs> so my given name is Ernesto Javier Arroyo Montano, and that was the name my parents gave me. My community gave me the name E-Rock, <laughs> and that's the name that stuck with me. To the point where my father will sometimes say, Irok. <laughs> but I love my name, Ernesto. But I've been going by Iraq since I was 14, and I'm 38 now. Uh, I'm Boricua. I'm Puerto Rican. I was born and raised in the city of Boston. My parents came in 1976, and I was born in 81. I was a child of two activists, advocates, teachers. When I was 21, my father became the first Latino elected to represent the city of Boston. And I was raised in movement. And so I was a part of a moment in this city that was really full with resistance, black and brown coalition building. If you would have asked me at 16, I would have said I want to be a revolutionary. I joined organizations that helped me to be myself in my community. Project Hip Hop, 
stood for Highways into the Past History Organizing Power, and I was a youth organizer, writer. We put out a little newspaper. I was proud of myself for that, you know? Um, I'm a hip-hop MC. That has given me so much of my perspective. I've been able to perform in uh, South Africa and Cuba. I got to build with Asada Shakur and Nahanda Obiodun. I got to perform in Palestinian refugee camps. And this gave me my vision, my eyes. I was like this Puerto Rican queer kid from Boston. And I was a traveling musician. <laughs> uh, I'm a father. I'm a father of three children. Javier Albizu, Kimani Emeterio, Nia Caraya, beautiful babies, 11, 5, and 4. Their mother, Javier's mother, Alexia, and Kimani and Nia's mother, Ayana, have been instrumental in my life. I remember when I first started dating Ayana, I was like, hey, you need to know I'm queer. And she was like, cool. <laughs> and just the way she's evolved me by being like, hey, you know, you really like books. How about read this uh, Bell Hooks? It's like, these are all the things, and this is part of what makes me. And there's so much. And there's also just a lot of privileges that I've had because of this life that I've lived manifested as a cis man. And I've come to terms with what that means. And I've been doing the work on being clear about the virus that patriarchy is and that beyond this privilege is actually something that's destroying us from within. It benefits our souls, our communities, our everything to want to dismantle patriarchy and white supremacy and corporate and financial exploitation of people, you know. So that anything that's doing that has attracted me as an artist, a photographer, a poet. And I currently get my institutional support because I work for the community and my elders and the people that keep me accountable. But my institutional support comes from a wonderful grassroots organization called United for a Fair Economy under the leadership of our elder, indigenous, brown, formerly undocumented, incredible popular educator, facilitator, leader, Jeanette Wessel, I get to do work around healing justice in the fight for economic and racial and gender justice. So I feel like I'm constantly at an edge, but I'm also feeling the blossoms when they come to. That was a wonderful introduction. <laughs> I, um... One of the things I've been moved by in each of our conversations is the way that you give props, love, and respect to your boss <laughs> at work. Like that, like, and especially, you know, the way that you describe her leadership. I was looking for that when I was looking for a job. I'm there as the director of cultural organizing. And when I was looking for this job, you know, they were hiring an educator. And when I came in, Jeanette, my boss, my doña, was like, here's your job description. I want you to rewrite it, you know, within reason, with your passions, and then give it back to me and we'll talk about it. I knew I was under a different kind of leader. Wow. And someone who really wanted to see us be free, not somebody who was emulating corporate structures. And not this, like, perfect human, an imperfect human being who's so wonderful to work for <laughs> and yes. with and with. Yeah. So it's very easy to give her love. I see it as an apprenticeship under someone who was a popular educator for 16 years before being the ED, you know, mm -hmm. came here during the Civil War in El Salvador and someone who I would want to have mentorship under anyway. I feel like it's healing to just listen to somebody love their leadership. Word. So let's talk about this bell hooks, because I heard you mention this a few times to your partner, bringing you bell hooks, you know, in yes. the service of, of your growth. I was given for my birthday, <laughs> very early when we were dating, for my partner, bell hooks, the will to change. 
And, you know, I was grateful for it. You know, little did I know, right? It was a wonderful mirror being held to my face and some of the things that I was seeing I didn't like. And some of it was very painful and some of it brought tears. I would be reading pages in The Will to Change and I would be like, how does Bell Hooks know me so well, right? Why is she describing? Oh, you know, and understanding the collective internalized patriarchy that shows up in men. No one is not going to be breathing in some of that poison. So trying to figure out how that looked on me and realizing I didn't like how it looked on me. Mm -hmm. What are some of the specific things that you felt like were being mirrored? Some, sometimes an inability to restrain anger or frustration. For me, I would be able to yell, no problem. No problem. Just if we're fighting, the yelling is fine. Like that's not a, that's not something that's disrespectful. Yelling is what happens in fights. Why? I grew up and it was yelling in the fights at home, right? Like it wasn't like this thing that I made up. To be fair, in that, in that situation, it was, it was my mom's. Shout out mommy, three-dimensional human being, teacher, and beautiful person who used to just dog out poppy for, you know, coming up short sometimes. It was unfortunate, instructive video for a child to think that that's how, that's what it means. You know, they were married 36 years before they separated. But, oh, that's how you survive in this stuff. So starting to see that, nope, not okay. I was always of the nature of like, well, you know, I wouldn't put my hands on anybody. I wouldn't uh, call them out their name. So if I'm huffing and puffing and I'm throwing my body in the air and I'm throwing it around, then the bar is so low. I'm thinking I'm, I'm jumping on all the way over it. You know, hey, you know, I want to be a good person in the world. I want to be a good man in the world. So, you know, I would never put my hands on somebody and I would never, you know, call them out their name. But here I am scaring you with my, my, my body and my language and uh, intimidating you inadvertently, but doing so. And so that was one of the things that I noticed about myself pretty quickly. And I didn't want to be that way. And I transformed, you know, it took work. It took first some crying, you know, but then I had to get over that part. I still will cry. I'm not above crying. I'm just saying after a while when you're like reflecting on an open wound, the crying might get in the way of you actually like closing the wound and taking care of it and, you know, learning to appreciate the scar and thinking about what the lessons are and really taking care of yourself. I don't think we're a society that often lets people heal their wounds, you know, their PTSD, their traumas, et cetera. So a lot of it to me was connected to traumas. And a lot of times I would be like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, I've, I have this rage and this anger for this five-year-old boy in me that was completely shattered, you know, that had his, like, understanding of himself that I was worth very little and that I was worthy of having someone's trauma spill over onto me. And at the time, I probably didn't have those words. Mostly, it was just that I was worthy of getting beat, that I deserved it. And uh, I had to confront that because I hadn't confronted that in me. So then rooting, rooting the traumas, rooting pain, rooting anger, rooting frustration, and being like, this has nothing to do with this human being that I have in front of me. 
but it has everything to do with how I'm going to be right now and how can I move forward and shift because after a while, you know, sorry is not enough. Shifting and changing your behaviors and your patterns. I'm grateful for the patience and the love that was given to me to be able to try to do that work. And I've been committed to it since. No, there's no half-stepping. That is such a tender place. And when you talk about the crying and the tapping into where it comes from, it's like, I just feel, I feel with you in that emotion. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing you talk about your partner. I'm hearing you talk about reading bell hooks. Like what other supports is you, have you leaned on and do you lean on now in doing that kind of rigorous growth work? There, there's been one uh, person in my life for, for so long uh, who's a mirror for me and my brother, my, the, the founder, the co-founder of the Foundation Movement, my hip-hop group. His name is Brother Optimus. And Optimus is just, you know, like this <laughs> beautiful human being and that has uh, helped me to to be a better me in so many ways and, and seeing the iteration after iteration after iteration and the love and the care I give myself. And um, at one point, my group, we were living in, in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn and we were performing out there in SOBs and Galapagos and Southpaws. And this is in 2007. And I had at that time my first, I guess, anxiety attack in front of someone else right I had had like anxiety and panic attacks most of my life but I knew how to get away from people to get to my room or get to you know I would self-quarantine most of the time um and cut school if it's happening during school like I just became very good at being like yep nope that's not that's not it that's not gonna you know that's not gonna help me for survival here so I strategized around it and uh, he saw me having an anxiety attack, a panic attack, and put his hand on my shoulder and asked me what I needed. It's continuous work. There's times where like, you're like, oh, I did it. Nah, I know you did it. You know what I mean? Like, you, may, you may have unlocked another level, but there's another level. There's more and more and more. It's perpetual work of trying to figure out how am I going to be a, a good person in the world like, and a good person that can like, love myself authentically all the way and not with shame either, but with, you know, but actual self-introspection and self-reflection and shifting behaviors. Right. I started to realize how part of what was happening for me was realizing the ways in which sometimes when we shift and we start to grow and we feel like we're coming through growing edges, we look back at the skin we shed and we judge that skin. And I don't want to do that as much anymore. It's not the space and place I see myself in. How do we value our evolution while also understanding that the caterpillar is just as important as the butterfly? Yeah, I'm struck by the way you talk about the layers or the levels. Like, And I super relate to that feeling around being like, okay, I mean, now I'm like 15 years into doing anti-racism work as a white person, and I feel way worse at it now than when I started. Mm. And I know that's not empirically true. Like, I know that part of that is the growth of becoming more attuned and realizing how deep this shit actually is. And I know one of the things that we were talking about the other day was like the different levels and the insidiousness of how patriarchy shows up, especially in like quote unquote woke spaces. Mm -hmm. Like, it's one thing, like the, you know, what you were describing, like a, re a really visible, visceral relationship to anger. Yeah. Is like, something that can be kind of easy to spot yep. in somebody else, right? But um, 
in a lot of our social justice spaces, like that would be not be tolerated. Uh-huh. Yet Facts. patriarchy is still showing up in a lot of different, like quieter, sneakier ways. Yes. And still showing up hard. And so I wonder if we could just brainstorm a little bit together, like what are some ways that we can name that we've seen or experienced that happening so that these layers can be represented in our conversation? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's hard for me because I also want to bring the intersection into play, right? So often the people whom have brought me the most uh, systemic pain, you know, have been uh, white men. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's like, wait, whoa, 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 don't clump me in with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So sometimes I struggle with that. Uh, and I think the intersections matter. Uh, but also, and also, we, we got work to do. It's not like a, it's not, that's not an unaccountability. That's just saying there's a distinction and there's a distinction and. And so often I think I grew up at the hands of in a system where white men in Boston, Massachusetts were in power in elections in elected power. They were in street power, Whitey Bulger. They were in power in the schools. They were in power uh, and white women were the teachers. And it was a white white folks calling the shots. And I actually grew up thinking that it is incredibly difficult for black and brown boys in particular, because we were so often f- fighting each other and there was, uh, I was no stranger to violence as a child. You know, the first time a young boy was stabbed that I saw, I was in the sixth grade. I'm 11 years old. I'm at the Martin Luther King Middle School in Dorchester, Boston. And this kid gets stabbed and like, you know, it's, you start to realize there's a thing that you have to learn here for, for survival. And usually as I get older, I realize so much of that was started by white men. I get so frustrated sometimes being clumped in with them, but they got work to do and we got work to do. And I'll, ha- and I'll do work with them. You feel me? I'm not someone who's like, I won't do that work. I'll do that work with you. But recognize that I, we're doing work over here too, and black and brown men and, and men of color and, and all of that. And we got work to do too when it comes to patriarchy. I'm recognizing the distinction and, and knowing that there's... Uh, so many things in, at play and what creates our survival mode and our operating systems. And we had to have those conversations. We have to figure out how we walk in the world. One of the shifting things for me as a young man, I was maybe in my early 20s, and um, I had a wonderful abolitionist, feminist, non-binary organizer in Boston by the name of Mallory Honora. She was talking to me because I was doing, uh, I was photographing for her. And she had the tattoo she had, which she would call, right? Like she had said, Madonna whore complex thing, just drawn on her. And I was a young man. I didn't know anything about that. I hadn't had any conversations around that before. And it was this idea that like men saw women as either kind of this saint or this whore. Like there was no, it was this wild thing. And at the time I realized that some of that poison was inside of me instantly. That we have these like, a real woman is this and a, a good woman is this and, and, and this judgmental aspect. And also just even who the hell are you to say what it is? Just that, like just even that. And you start to see that in, quote unquote, like some of the woke spots and spaces in which I was in. 
and occasionally, yeah, I would perform and be in conversations. And part of the reason that I was actually afraid to come out is because of the way patriarchy shows up in some of these spaces. And now I'm taking black and brown men to task, right? So some of the ways that you hear people talking, some of the ways in which it becomes okay to degrade uh, queer men. And, you know, I identify as pansexual and I knew this isn't a safe space. And I realized that I was able to, in coming out and coming out and coming out and continuing to come out, I keep finding my peoples. My peoples are finding me and I'm finding my peoples. And I'm realizing that maybe some of the, the men for whom I felt like I needed um, affirmations from in the community were never going to give me that affirmation if I was going to be fully myself. And so I had to like think about what that means. But it means that patriarchy like will cut you off from someone that was your homie because now he tells you that he, you know, he has a uh, sexuality that can go at any gender, you know, and that, you know, it's, it's, it's been something that has brought me a lot of pain too, transformation. And I think about it when I'm talking and working with men and thinking about like how cis hetero men are uh, very violent <laughs> often too and um, disgusting even and thinking about how to confront that in a way that doesn't actually, um, not hold them accountable, but also doesn't come in with uh, with a sense of I'm better than you. More like, yo, I, I see what's happening here. I've seen the ways in which we've gotten got. And if we can release and, and, and evolve and listen and grow and, and share our emotions in stable ways and find ways to uphold each other and cry around each other and hug each other and hold hands and tell each other we're scared and tell each other that you had suicidal ideation, but you've been seeing, you know, and checking in on each other and, and doing the work in that way. I think that's shifted. And those are the people that uh, I consider to be my closest friends. Uh, we can do that work together. And that's so freeing. And that's, I think, what you start to realize when you start to do the work to unpack and to release, you know, like whiteness and patriarchy and all of these things when you, you walk as you manifest it, but you understand that there's a liberation in, in uh, not being okay with societal norms. You know, how could you rebel against all the other ways in which the system is hurting and killing us and not think about the way that it's destroying, you know, the people we say we care about, you know, people we are responsible for raising, educating, being in community with. Yeah. Put, and putting them in fear. But that one of the ways that you know that you're actually interrupting something is that, like when you talked about your friends who are like never going to fully... Hmm. be with you or maybe they will but for uh, now it feels like never yeah um or it may be never some um, of them some of them let's to be clear some of them threatened my life and hmm. um because they couldn't come to terms with the fact that i was queer so they threatened my life and they threatened me with violence and yeah. so i had to you know i blocked them on social media and i cut them off but I still pray for their for love and transformation and for them to find peace in their hearts and to see you know but what what is being done to them in this? Mm. But also very far away from me, please. 
you know, yeah. I don't. Oh, definitely. So, you know, maybe one day we'll connect and we'll do a circle and we'll connect and we'll find a way to recognize that, you know, our humanity in, in a way. I, I'm not I'm not beyond that at all. But as of right now, I don't yeah, I don't foresee that. Hey, everybody, it's Kate. I just wanted to drop in to let you know that we just switched over to a new read in our book club. So part of the conversation that's been really magical since Iraq and I recorded what you're listening to right now is that I mailed this new book that is called Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture to Iraq over in Boston. And he can speak for himself. I think sometime in the next couple of weeks, we'll do a Facebook Live. Make sure you're following us, Healing Justice Podcast, or at Healing Justice on Instagram in case we end up choosing Instagram to do this. But he's been actually taking the book around his community and having conversations, reading it out loud on people's porches with elders, with friends, um, even bringing it to a men's group. Um, And this book is an incredible study guide around gender and really useful for people of all genders um, and also around accountability and harm. And I'm really grateful to Nora Samran and Serena Lucas Bandar who were on the podcast an episode ago. You can scroll back in your feed and listen to The Emergence of Nurturance Culture for writing this book and really bringing some of these tools in such an accessible way. It's such a great book to like throw in your backpack or your bag. It's really light. Um, If you've read Pleasure Activism with us last quarter in book club, this is a similar format where you open up the book and there are selections and contributions on different themes from different authors. Um, And so it's really something you can pick up, read some of, um, put down, share with a friend, whatever. And so we're really excited to be featuring it on Book Club this month. Um, You can order it directly from AK Press, who are our movement publisher friends, at akpress.org and use the word podcast to get 15% off the book. But you can also join our book club officially. We offer some benefits to our book club members as a means of gratitude for the exchange of you supporting us financially to sustain this podcast and we are so grateful to the almost 300 of you that have joined giving on our patreon ten dollars a month or more to both support the work that we give away for free every week with these episodes and also support book club which includes a 30 percent off uh, discount code from our friends at ak press It includes a study guide or a discussion guide in case you are discussing the book at your organization or having people over to your living room or meeting in the park uh, with some discussion questions from us and from the authors to kick you off in some deep discussion around the book. And it also includes a virtual hangout at the end of the quarter. So this will be in October or November of 2019 where we will gather online and have an interactive conversation with uh, the author Nora Samaran and also some of the other contributing authors. I know that Alex Johnson's going to be there from the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collaborative um, and others who will be joining us to have some interactive conversation about the book. If you are regretting missing last quarter with Pleasure Activism, 
Then joining now also gives you access to all of the back resources from prior quarters, including a recording of our live discussion with Adrienne Marie Brown, Monique Tula, and Amita Swadheen about pleasure activism. It gives you access to the discussion guide for pleasure activism. So if you miss that quarter, you can still join now and you'll get all of those back resources. The way that you join is to go to patreon.com slash healing justice. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash healing justice. Thanks so much for reading with us, learning with us, and let's get back to the conversation with E-Rock. I would say a pretty formative first experience of trying to integrate healing into direct action work that I had some years ago was being at the United States Capitol as part of like a five-day action where every day hundreds of people got arrested Mm -hmm. and were sleeping on church floors and hard pews and had marched you know, across many cities on the East Coast before getting there and were deeply exhausted and majorly committed. We went to offer like a morning kind of connection time at the opening rallies each day before people would hear the main speaker and chant and march to the Capitol and get arrested. Mm -hmm. And we did probably 10 minutes in the morning of like breathing, noticing the sky. We did a connection exercise where you reach and touch hands with the people around you and try to tap into the collective energy of the group, kind of like a power sourcing. And... We had been asked to do it, and we had scheduled out programming across five days to have different people come through, like a young black mother with her kids with her up on stage, like leading part of the exercise, like people from the D.C. community. And at the end of day two, the planning committee came to us and were like, oh, we need to cancel the rest of these. And we were like, why? And they're like, you know, people just feel like it's not the right tone for the rally. Like, we want to tap into power. And we're trying to bring power with us when we like go to the Capitol and Mm. it's just not the right energy. And we fought really hard. I think for me, that back and forth around that was a really intense look in the face. It was like we started getting to, well, who doesn't think it's the right energy, you know? And it was mostly the white guy kind of labor leadership people and like power. Let's talk about the word power. Does power only look like yelling at the top of our lungs because these people have been going for like five, seven days. Yeah. We can't stand 10 minutes of a different kind of power. Yeah. Like it felt like people were threatened or unsettled in a really disproportionate way to what we were talking about 10 minutes in a full day of an agenda, you know? Yes. In you leading healing work, culture work, butting up against masculinity, all of that work, how do you see the suspicion and the rejection uh-huh. or the resistance to this kind of work? So first of all, I'm sorry that you had that experience. I think about it so many ways, and I'll make the distinction again, that I've seen white men and labor folks and all that operate in movement sometimes, and that power is shown through uh, being loud and animated. And while that is a form of power, and, and it's not one that I would say isn't powerful, I think when we're talking about also sitting and zoning in and really kind of internally thinking about how what we're working for and what we're trying to disrupt and what we're being a part of and being with our bodies and and all these kind of things, I think that's just as powerful or it's a powerful way of being. I think sometimes the vision is very short-sighted around what power looks like. And it's an emulation of power structures that are already hurting us. 
you know, just if we could do that better, but somehow we won't harm people while we're doing it, you know, because we'll do it version 7.0. So it becomes a matter of like, how are we transforming ourselves and how are we living our values while we do this very movement work, while we fight to be liberated and free? What is the internal work that we're doing that shows up in the external struggle? And if we're not ready to evolve even in how our movements move, you know, I think that is to our detriment. You know, and I see a lot of folks that are not, that are being like, yeah, look, we've learned a lot of lessons here. We are a continuation. We stand on your shoulders. And, you know, maybe we need to think about this strategy or this tactic or how are we evolving to the things that are around us? And how are we also keeping ourselves ready to keep being, you know, warriors in the fight for peace and justice and love and for, you know, the downfall of white supremacy and patriarchy. These are big, heavy things and systems that are continuously we have to resist, fight and create and imagine, right, the new ways of being that don't show deference and love and consideration to those systems. And also while we're experimenting with that, I believe we have to be patient with ourselves, caring with ourselves, self-evaluate, critical love. Absolutely. And also like, hey, we're trying, we're trying to figure this out together. You know, I'm weary of the people who are like, this is the way, you know, I'm weary of that. Mm -hmm. The people who are completely sure that they're right, like just out the gate, like that's, that merits suspicion and deconstruction. (laughs) That's one of the ways I think also that men are taught to talk, Mm. right? It becomes like, they they say speak with confidence, but it's often more of an arrogance. They say speak with conviction. It's often this kind of like, I, I'm a know-it-all. And I think we have to, you know, for me, there's something to speaking like confident and, you know, sure of your words. That's, that's wonderful. And also to like operate with, I don't know, you know, in the system. This idea that somehow, you know, I'm, yeah, anyone that comes to me is like, yo, I've, I know how to fix everything. You know, this is how you do it. And rah, you know, ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna have to reconsider that person's ability to uh, self-evaluate. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know. The first time we talked on the phone, yes. you asked me a question that I have since been using, which is, how do you like to be held accountable? Yes, and I love that question. I remember you saying something about like, if the answer is I don't, then that's your red flag, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, nah, I don't like being held accountable. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? What are we doing here? <laughs> what are, yeah. So I think that's a, that's a definite red flag. I think we should all want to be held accountable. And if it's people who are loving us and doing work with us and caring for us and people who are in those roles and community that we look, we look to for reciprocal love and mentorship and care, like, then damn, you better listen. Mm-hmm. And when you listen, you know, I think that for me, the process of accountability has been a gift. And the ways in which I can be accountable to myself and the people I love in my community increase my capacity and ability to be whole, to, to be healthier, and to be able to walk in the world in the way that I want to walk in the world, which makes me someone who can be proud of the example that I'm giving, not just the rhetoric I'm spitting, you know? And I think that's for some people like, hey, you know, the talk is great. And that first step is great. And like you do that very well. But when you get stuck there, you, you miss out on the next steps in the process of being like, oh, okay, how do I course correct? 
what does sorry look like in actions here? In what ways can we make up for things? In what ways can we uh, redeem ourselves with ourselves? You know, be the version of ourselves that we can really truly love at night. That's the work, I think, I believe, because that those versions will be healthier and able to really strategize together for our liberation in, in ways that are be more holistic. Mm. And how do you answer that question? Like for people that you work with, how do you like to be held accountable? Can you give us an example? One, yeah, I love a good one-on-one. <laughs> uh-huh. My, yeah. I, I love a good one-on-one. Come talk to me. You can tell me. Call me anything yeah. under the sun, the moon, the stars. And we can, yeah. we can have a, if, you, if I know that your interest is in bettering me and, 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 the, and the community and movement, like uh, come and give it to me and, um, and we'll have that conversation. Um, yep. And, you know, I have people like that. I have people like this. Iraq, can I talk to you? Mm-hmm. You know, those are folks I learned to hold dear mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that keep me because they love me and they want, and they're like, yo, E, like, you know, quick check, you know? And I, and then I have to operate from a place of, okay, now what? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I like to be held accountable like that with love, with care. Um, I like to be held accountable with circle work. I do circle work. I've been a circle keeper for 11 years. I like to be held accountable, uh, not like uh, surprise accountability party. You know, <laughs> I like to I like to be invited to my accountability party. <laughs> <laughs> I like to know what's going to happen uh-huh. and, and have a sense of like how I can show up and what's the best ways for me to be. And that also gives me the ability to like meditate or get my mind right and think about things. And if I got to cry, cry. And if I got to, you know, you know, run some energy off, run some energy off and then be ready for a conversation in which I got to hear things. It took me a while because so much of the critique that I received, I also got a belt with. So I was like someone for whom critique meant just a reminder that I wasn't shit you know what I mean that I'm not worth mm. it and I would mm. be like why are you doing this very flinchy very kind of cringing like and I had to realize uh, that there are some people who love me so much that their critique was not actually an attempt to tell me that I wasn't worthy it was actually them showing my worth mm. Mm. you're worthy of hearing ways in which you can be a better person in this relationship in this community in this world and you're worthy of hearing it uh, and, and, and really thinking about what it means and receiving it and loving on yourself in the ways, in the ways that it brings up traumas for you. And then recognizing that, you know, if, we don't, if you don't heal that, you're just going to keep being an open wound, right? So like doing the work on that, you know. Mm-hmm. I think if it's somebody that really has intentions of love and care for me, we can have all the accountability we go. It might be someone that doesn't have that. We can have an accountability process. I wouldn't be beyond that. But in terms of like me getting excited for accountability, it's people whom I'm, I'm in community with, care for, that, that I know have a sense of like social justice in their heart and, and a want, you know, to be in the world with empathy and, and all of that. I don't, I don't need to hear that I'm not shit. I've already, I've already heard that enough in my life. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. good with hearing that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can feel too, right? Like you can Facts. feel when accountability is coming in as yes. like, I'm reacting to you. I want to hurt you. I want to distance you. Like, and you can feel when it's coming in, like, I, it's a given to me that you're part of this community. And so how do we 
improve the relations Mm -hmm. or like, I want to fight alongside you for your healing and your potential. Yeah, I hope. I think we can develop that feeling too, like the intuition, like the Mm -hmm. sacred divine feeling of like, oh, this is something I need to walk into, right? It won't be easy. It might be uncomfortable. But on the other side of that is version 27.0. I I make the joke that, you know, you shouldn't still be operating on DOS, right? Like, (laughs) it's a throwback for the OGs. Um, But like thinking about our operating systems and our updates and and all of that kind of stuff, like accountability is like finding a virus on you and you want to update. You know what I mean? Like, come on. What's, how is that a bad thing? And, and so then I started to flip it in a way that was very truthful for me, which that I became appreciative for it when it came uh, in the ways that I could hear it and really sit with it. And that it was uh, love in the form of critical love, you know, as James Baldwin would say. Mm-hmm. Actually, it helps me to be more critically loving of people as well and thinking about how do you like to be held accountable? What are the ways in which you like to, hey, do you have a moment? <laughs> and really listening. If the person's like, nah, not right now, but like next Wednesday, <laughs> I could be like, all right, cool. You know, and you can figure yeah. things out and be patient and wait for the right, you know, opportunity. Maybe not in the middle of it all, you know, try not to scapegoat. But, you know, that's my way. As a, I was a youth worker, as an educator, I would tell people like scapegoating the student in the classroom is the surest mm-hmm. way to lose the classroom. Mm. So I think a lot of people operated classrooms in fear and stuff. I didn't want to be that educator. You know, for five years, I was able to be like an educator and artist in residence at uh, Diploma Plus. And that's where actually they would give me the young men, boys groups. And and like me thinking about like, okay, how much of my vulnerability am I going to show? I can't just be here on this perfect dude shit. Yeah. Uh, how much of it's going to be like, yo, here's the way I came up short. Or here's something I've been working on or here's something that makes my voice crack and having circle and sharing rhymes and exploring rhymes. Because in rhymes, sometimes things are said that you can explore further. You know, meet them where they're at and also give them the opportunity to consider that there might be uh, more. Mm -hmm. And that that more might actually be like healing and liberating you know yeah you have been working that liberation program for yourself and in your community for i mean i don't know if you were born into an activist family should we chalk it up what 38 years <laughs> like you talked about being a circle keeper for yes. 11 years right like you talked about the experience of of coming out as queer and really like choosing to lead with that in a way that like you're partnered with a woman like you wouldn't have had to uh-huh like be forthright about being like, this is something that I'm going to proactively reveal about myself, right? I try to think about what is it that I'm looking for. The ways that I think about love as as a very like, it's an incredible word and, and it encompasses so much, you know, for some spiritual people, they'll say God is love. I've heard folks say that. I like that. I've heard people say, you know, love as an action. I say that. I like that. And I think of love as like this all kind of like knowing, loving, patient, caring, critically loving, empathy, oozing um, manifestation that we all have an ability to tap into in ourselves. And that the systems work, the virus works by like stopping us from connecting to that space. Distractions, pains, traumas, you know, shit. 
the murdering of people, the spirits and souls and the, the metaphysical battle that exists within the very real collective conscious reality that we're living. And I think there's a lot of uh, vicarious and secondhand trauma as well. I think there's a lot of pain and grief that a lot of people are experiencing and how those are taught in patriarchy and colonization. You know, it's usually this kind of survival of the fittest. It's this like uh, kill or be killed. It's, uh, it's a very uh, aggressive, patriarchal, destructive force. And so anyone who's saying, I don't want war, <laughs> I want, you know, equality and human rights, has to be thinking about how they're excavating patriarchy that has written on them in the inside. And how are we doing that, you know, in the community? And for me, it's been by bringing healing justice into this work and trying to share spaces with men who are, at the very least, there's the sense of one-on-one at the very least, and sometimes there's more than that. But at the very least, something that's like, hmm, when you put it like that, patriarchy does seem like it could be a problem, Iraq, right? Like, I know there's work that has to be done with the folks who are like, nah, you're completely bugging, right? And I'll do some of that work as well. But I've been doing a lot of the intimate and vulnerable with some of the men who are just kind of starting to be like, huh, maybe there is something to the ways in which I've been told a man is supposed to be that is harming me and the people I claim to love. And so how do I unpack that? I have had a lot of those conversations. I have had a lot of those interventions. I've had a lot of those circles. I've had a lot of those calls. And um, honestly, more than we can handle. You know, this is why we try to figure out how we can uh, uh, do what we can to the best of our ability. And, you know, we connect and create and develop and share with other folks as much as possible so that other people can do this work in different regions and spaces and places and how do we connect and how do we figure that out. And, and also the work that's already being done in other spaces and places, how can we connect with that? I see some really powerful work that's going to be pivotal to transitioning. I feel interested in this thread around grief because I know you're going to be offering us a practice that deals with it pretty directly. Right? Uh-huh. Yes. I feel like there's this thing, there's a a common thread that humanity often has is, is levels of trauma and pain and grief. You know, and there's no escaping that. No matter class, you know, gender and, and race and, and all of that, that is, it's a pretty common thread. We've had these tragedies that are, are old school plays and grief shows up there will be death there will be suffering and for some people more than others and uh, in the work that i've done and in my life i've been around a lot of death and suffering so i think then grief comes into self uh talk grief comes into how we inhale oppression and systems and then repeat these things to ourselves so that they don't even have to be in the room anymore you know that they're operating on us. We're giving them playback time in our heads and our minds and our hearts. And grief shows up and it'll tell you things like you're not worthy and that you deserve pain and, and trauma and that you don't deserve joy, you know, and you don't deserve pleasure. And grief will show up in that way. Grief can become something that lingers. Grief is a process. But grief doesn't have to be a place you unpack and, and move into. You can visit with grief and step out. There's tactics, there's strategies, there's ways to be. 
to just be like, okay, this is a particular thing that maybe is going to take me more than one session to work on and get over. Might be a lifetime. Some people will say that's a reoccurring trauma. Some people are like, oh, those are my demons. Well, if we look at it from a metaphysical, that those are my demons, then you want to step up your weaponry and think about what it might look like when your demons come up. Like, does this demon need a hug? Does this demon need to have love? What are the ways in which I can react in this moment, but not disassociate from actually having a visit with my grief as a check-in? Because you see a lot of people disconnect from grief and, and, and bless them. Survival is strategy. When I reconnected with the fact that, you know, we have tears for a reason, so I feel good about letting them go. I feel uh, clarity sometimes right after a good cry. And so just reconnecting with that part that says this grief is okay. And also finding ways, community, connection. For me, that's been in circle work and meditation work and sacred and ceremony work and movement work where I can find ways in which I can connect with other people who may have shared griefs and traumas. And together we can go beyond that. Like thinking about the healing in the we spaces. You know, I'm all for you having a therapist, uh, someone that you're working on one-on-one with, mentors, et cetera. But thinking about what your healing process looks like in the we spaces and collectives, in circles, it could be something you've created with that kind of challenge of finding friends to connect with, people in your life to kind of hold you accountable to the person you say that you want to be. And I think about grief as something you alchemize, something that helps you to be whole. You surrender sometimes to it. You recognize that there's a commitment to it. It's not something that you've overcome and it goes away forever. That's not the snake oil that I'm buying. There is grief and there is times that we will suffer and there is pain that we will feel. And, and, and the more empathetic you develop and the more love you have, the ability to feel grief is going to show up even more. And then what does it look like to use this as a process to cleanse with it? So I'm actually, I will be giving one of the ways in which I try to alchemize grief in the practice. And I look forward to sharing that with folks. And hopefully for some folks, it'll resonate from a place of like, word up, you know, this, this works for me. Or some variation of it works for you. We're going to begin to close and head towards offering that grief practice, which those of you who listen to the podcast know that we offer a conversation one week and the following week release a practice that corresponds to the conversation. So if you're listening to this right when it comes out, you'll be able to access Iraq's practice next week. Um, but before we go, I mean, the mic is yours, Iraq. I hesitate to say it because I know you know how to use it. <laughs> but is there anything that you want to leave us with? Anything you feel like a message for folks that you didn't get to say today? The more I know, the more I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, there's something liberating, like I said, about the I don't know space. It allows you to really connect. So I just invite people to listen to some of the other episodes and, you know, some of the some of the practices and, and just, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity that I had to be able to be in community. And I hope that those of you who are listening are still with us that, you know, maybe you found something, you know, in what I said that might might be helpful. You know, keep what you need and leave what you don't. Challenge what you must and push and pull. And we out here just trying to love on each other and know that, know that my goal is liberation for all peoples. So... That's what we're trying to do. 
Enormous thank you to Iraq Arroyo Montano for having this conversation with us and being committed to this work. You can find resources related to dismantling patriarchy by joining our email list at healingjustice.org, by joining book club and reading Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture with us by joining at patreon.com slash healingjustice, and also by following along with us on social media. We're going to be posting a lot of resources over these two weeks while this episode airs at Healing Justice on Instagram, Healing Justice Podcast on Facebook, and at HJ Podcast on Twitter. Links are in the show notes to learn more about E-Rock and get connected with him. We are so grateful for the editing on this episode that was done by Jale Akavan, the mixing and production by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room, and the episode art, as always, by my partner, Josiah Warning. As y'all know, there are some big transitions happening here at the podcast, both with our two new team members who started this week and our name change that continues to move along and will be fully revealed before the end of the year. So stick with us and we are so grateful to be in this work with you. Hear you next week with a practice from Iraq about taking a sacred bath or shower. Hear you then. <laughs>